The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, tonight I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and the title of this message this afternoon is Bad Things Happen for Good Reasons. And this is the third time that I've attempted to preach this sermon, and every time I get ready to preach it, something bad happens. So uh, hopefully nothing bad is going to happen, and I'll be able to go ahead with this tonight. But if you look in Philippians chapter 1, Uh, If I could sum up what Paul has to say in the few verses that we're going to look at tonight, the summation of it would be that bad things happen for good reasons. Paul's letters to the churches always contain doctrines uh, the church needs to know. Sometimes they contain rebukes for heresies that would try to filter into the church, and Paul would warn the church about those. But another reason that that Paul wrote his letters was to let people know how things were going with him personally. He started many churches, and as we've already seen in our study of Thessalonians, uh, he came to love the churches that he ministered to, the converts that he made. And of course, they would be interested in what Paul was doing and how things were going in other places where Paul preached. And so Paul wrote to the church here, the one, the letter we're reading tonight, he wrote to the church at Philippi, and he, and he started out by giving them a report on his personal well-being. And if we were to look at this from purely a human standpoint, then we would say that things aren't going very well. It doesn't look like that things are going well for Paul. He was imprisoned unjustly. He was a Roman citizen that had made an appeal for justice. But if you know the story, it went month after month and Paul's appeals were ignored. And it doesn't seem as if Paul was able to fulfill his God-given calling as of being a preacher and a missionary of the gospel, at least in the way that he thought that these things should happen. So things here don't look to be doing very well. Bad things happened. And if there was anyone who had a cause, a reason to be bitter and angry over what happened in his life when he was such a robust servant of Jesus Christ and one who just um, gave his all for the cause of Christ, if there was anyone who had a cause to complain, you would think Paul is that man. But as we read this letter of Philippians, we see that he never writes with a tone of bitterness He never says that God is unfair to me. He just says that that things are bad, but bad things happen for good reasons. So let's read about this, beginning in uh, verse number 12 of Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read a little bit further than what we've noted there. We're going to go on down to the 21st verse for our reading. Philippians 1, verse number 12. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. 
The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. But the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now in Paul's day, they obviously didn't have the kinds of communication that we have today. One of our so-called advancements, quotation marks, advancements of modern technology is the ability that we have to be in instant communication with anyone anywhere in the world. And I say a so-called advancement because instant communication is not always good. It used to be that I only had to worry about a handful of people that would interrupt me during the day. You know, the usual suspects, Jorge, uh, Lino, and Jason. Uh, I could expect that. But now anyone from anywhere can interrupt me. Now, typically, the way that I get ready for Sunday sermons is I study on Mondays, Monday mornings, Tuesday mornings, Thursday mornings, and Friday mornings. I'm always studying for sermons in the morning, so what I try not to answer any of the emails that I receive until the afternoon, if I can possibly do that. But there is this thing that is called text messaging. Anybody ever heard of that? Anybody ever use that? Some people can't put their phone down because they must be in instant communication with somebody somewhere in the world. Always instant communication. I think that they could drop the portion of it, of that, they call it a smartphone, drop the phone altogether because nobody calls anybody on the phone anymore. So we're busy tapping out messages to one another. And I, and I don't really understand people how they're able to do that so quickly. I mean, I, I can make 10 phone calls in the time it takes me to tap out a phone, uh, a text message. But uh, people do that today, and, and of course the advantage of the text messaging is that you can control the conversation, you can cut it off any time that you want to, so maybe that's helpful. But with text messaging, people expect instant answers. I mean, what good is instant communication if you don't get instant answers? So when you get that text and you're working, the person on the other end who sends that to you has a complex. That is, if you don't answer that text message, you are rude. You're supposed to answer them right now, and that's what they expect. So my point is, when I get a text message, I know that the person on the other end of that text message, when I don't answer, they get angry, and the Lord's flock is just as if I had sheared the sheep in the winter. You understand that reference, shearing the sheep in the winter? They're not too happy about that. So text messaging, though, that means, you know, your long-lost relatives from Timbuktu, they can just get a hold of you anytime that they want to. And, and that's one of the reasons I don't have Facebook. Uh, people ask me, why don't you have Facebook? It's so easy. You can stay in touch with all the people from everywhere in the world. And my answer to that is I'm in touch with who I want to be in touch with. And if I'm not in touch with you, I don't want to be in touch with you. So that's why I don't have Facebook. But, but sometimes ease of communication is good. 
uh, when our son-in-law Jason was deployed with the Navy and they'd sent him to the Persian Gulf, I could uh, message with him and talk with him through emails or whatever just about any time because we had that, we had that ability. Uh, Clarissa in San Diego can get all the grandkids together and they can sit on the couch and we can Skype. Of course, they have to have two couches and I have to have, I have, to have a 48-inch wide monitor to see them all. But uh, that's, that's common. We can do that and it's great to have that ability. But Paul didn't have this luxury that we have today uh, of being in contact with the many different churches that he started. He couldn't be in instant communication. And so when there was that pastor that had a problem that he didn't know how to deal with, it wasn't easy to get in touch with Paul and just ask him a question. What do I do about this? How do I lead the church? What direction should I go with this problem that I had? have? But rather what Paul would, would do, would he would sit down and he would write a letter longhand, or he would have his amanuenses do that for him. And then he would send that letter out and it might not get to the recipient for uh, weeks or months before it actually arrived. And so you can imagine the anticipation that, that these people had when, when they had received a letter from Paul. When I get up in the morning and check my emails, I don't usually do it with eager anticipation. There's going to be 40 emails from people I've never heard of, and I've got to sift through all those. And so uh, I, that, that's not, uh, it's not like me that I would want to just get to the emails as soon as I get up. But these are people that when they opened Paul's letters, they were anxious to see what Paul was doing. They wanted ministry news. They wanted help with the problems that they had. And, and Paul wrote to them, and he would take the time that he needed to, to lead the church and give the church what they needed through these, through these letters that he sent. So we look at this letter uh, to Philippi, and, and it looks like Paul sends them bad news. But as we read it, there's something strikingly refreshing about what Paul says, because Paul tells him, in spite of all these things that are happening, God is doing some wonderful things in my ministry as I'm here in Rome. Now, I want you uh, to notice uh, that this comes from a man who by all natural appearances, his best laid plans don't work out. So, so let's see why he talks about good things that come out of bad circumstances. I'd like you to notice first this evening the certainty of trouble. We're not strangers to trouble. If you live, you have troubles. Job, who probably knew more about troubles than any person that ever lived, said in Job 14.1, man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of troubles. Life seems to have an innumerable set of problems. You have health issues, financial difficulties, relationship problems. Everywhere that you turn, every good experience seems that it's got three bad ones that go along with it. If you're human, you experience problems. Now, I know that when you have problems, you think nobody has ever seen the trouble I've seen. And have you heard that song? You know the song? Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Well, that's totally wrong. Everybody knows the trouble you've seen, and Jesus knows the trouble you've seen. Because it's, it, all of us have had these kinds of problems. Everybody's been through the same thing that you've been through. So everybody has these common experiences. Well, uh... Jesus knows, everybody else knows, life has this common set of problems. So I want to make that note. We experience 
common problems. The scripture says there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. All of us are born into the same world. Even though there are some who have more advantages than others, we still have problems that are common to the entire human race. All problems that we experience are the result of sin. And since all of us have been born with a sinful nature, we all experience these common problems. And this is the reason that Job said, if you are born of a woman, your days are full of trouble. And since all of us are born of women, our days are full of trouble. But days that are full of trouble don't have to be troubling days. Though you might experience all problems that are common to man, we don't need to live as Christians in despair and defeat. This book is about how Paul lived with trouble, and yet he saw God working through some very bad times. And for Christians, we also experience common problems. I mean, being a Christian doesn't mean that you're Problems will just melt away and that you'll escape the troubles that others have. I've seen many people that have been sold this bill of goods that they want to become Christians because someone told them, well, you just come to Christ and all your problems will be over. You won't have to worry about anything anymore. Just believe in Christ. Your marriage will come back together. Your kids will act like they're supposed to. You won't have any trouble with your teenagers. You'll get a new job and you'll never get sick. Well, it's true, there are some problems that are lessened because we are Christians. That is because we live differently than the world. We don't have the world's vices, and so we don't experience the problems that come from those. You're you're not going to become a drug addict if you don't take drugs, and you don't get venereal disease if you're faithfully monogamous in your relationships. You're not going to get arrested for stealing if, if you don't steal. But we still live in this sinful world in a body that's not yet been glorified. And because of that, we just go through the same problems that all others go through. The entire human race goes through these problems. But that's not all we experience because as believers, we also experience Christ problems. And so in addition to the common problems that we have, we have this problem of living in the world that's hostile to Christianity. And far from getting rid of problems, we take on a whole new set of problems when we become Christians. And it's not so much that people don't like us. They don't like what we stand for. They don't like the Christ that we serve. The scripture says that the natural man is at enmity with God and The world hates everything that is associated with God, and so we will feel the world's contempt. Jesus didn't say, well, if you get saved, everything's going to be smooth sailing from now on. No, his exact words to his disciples were, in the world ye shall have tribulation. He also said this in John 15, verse 20. Remember the word that I said unto you? The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me... They will also persecute you. And then you can read in Matthew. Jesus' teachings in Matthew would would sour those who aren't led by the Spirit to become Christians. He said, your family will hate you. Your friends will desert you. He said, I will send you out as sheep among wolves. And so whatever contempt that the world had for Christ, you can expect the same. You're going to experience the same. One who serves the master 
will suffer the same persecution as the master. And interestingly, Paul said about those who had become Christians uh, in the churches at Galatia, he said this to them, but if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Now there the Apostle Paul notices something in, in the church that really shouldn't be there, but it never should be there, and that is Christians that are at each other's throat. And so even when you get into church, when you get among the fellowship of God's people, you'll find out things don't always work out the way that you want to, and there are problems in the churches. And you say, oh, do you mean that Christians cause problems? Well, come and sit behind my desk for about a week and see if Christians cause problems. So the idea that is presented here is that we're not to expect anything less. We're not to be discouraged by this because things that happen to us are things that have been predicted to happen. Bad things that happen are predicted to happen. So it comes as no surprise. It shouldn't by those who've read the scriptures. We're warned by the Savior of these things and even the best of Christians are not immune to it. The great apostle Paul went through this. We're going to get to this later in 1 Thessalonians, but in the third chapter, he said that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know. Well, I look forward to getting to that passage of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians, because there we'll see when we reach that study that this thing that goes around where uh, Christians are intended to be happy all the time and Christians are intended to be rich and Christians are intended to be content in the world. No. The scripture says there's affliction. You've been appointed to suffering. You will suffer tribulation. Now, if you're discouraged on that point, at least you should be thinking now that, well, all of these things, since they are, these are problems that are common to man, that all of these things can, can happen to us, and without Christ, things could be worse. And in the end, things do get worse, because hell is waiting on the other side of all of life's troubles. Hell is not waiting on the other side for believers. We shall be saved from the wrath to come. That's what we read in 1 Thessalonians. So these troubles are certain. But what we need to do is see where is God taking us through our troubles? What does God intend to teach us by these troubles? How are these things going to work out for our good? Because that's what the scripture says. These things will work out for your good. And that's what Paul's attitude as he looked at the things that he went through. Bad things happened, but God had some very good reasons for them to happen. Now, secondly, Paul reveals that his bad prison experience was the opportunity for testimony. What would come out of this? Well, there is a great opportunity here for testimony. Uh, a prison experience would seem anything but a great opportunity. I mean, it seems that a missionary would do far better doing what missionaries normally do. Paul would have rather, I'm sure, have kept on traveling and go to many different places, but for that time that he was in prison, he couldn't do it. And one of the places that he really wanted to visit was Rome. Rome was the capital city of the empire. Rome abounded with opportunities to reach people that came from all different parts of the world. And when Paul wrote to the Roman church, uh, he wrote his probably his greatest and best-known book, that is 
the book of doctrine and defense of the gospel, that is the book of Romans. And in Romans, he said that he had a desire to visit the city and there to meet the believers that had come to know the Lord and also to have the opportunity to win converts as he had in other places. This is what he says in Romans 1.13. Now, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, or I was hindered, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. Well, here we are now in the letter to the Philippians, and Paul is in Rome, but in a much different circumstance than he hoped. He didn't want to visit Rome as a prisoner, but that's the way that God chose to get him there. Now, if you remember the story from Acts, uh, he went to Jerusalem to observe the feast. That was the Feast of Pentecost. And it was prophesied before he went that he would be put in chains. Now, sure enough, he was falsely accused when he got to Jerusalem. He was accused of taking a Gentile into the temple. And there was an uproar that ensued. And the next thing you know, Paul does end up as a prisoner. And for two years, he was ushered between various Roman governors until finally he made an appeal to Caesar and then Paul was put on a ship that was bound for Rome. So he got to Rome. And you remember the perils that he experienced on the way. He was shipwrecked. He swam to shore within an inch of his life. He was bitten by a poisonous snake. And now he is in Rome and he has guards chained to either side of him. But that became one of his best opportunities. Now let's go back to our text in Philippians for just a minute. Verse number 12 says, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. So he says, Here I am, I am in Rome, not the way that I expected, but this bad thing happened to me that I might have a greater opportunity to witness. Rome thought that they had shut Paul up. They hated his preaching. They thought they'd stopped him. But Paul took advantage of his opportunities. If not in one way, then he would take advantage of them in, in, in another. And, and when you read this, you can't help but think of Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers. And for years, Joseph languished in prison but he remained a testimony while he was there. He never stopped believing God and never stopped laying the groundwork for greater things that would happen. And then finally, Joseph was released from prison. And years later, when he had become second in command in Egypt, he met his brothers again. And do you remember what he said to his brothers? He said in Genesis 50, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. You see, God has the advantage of seeing the big picture. All the things that he brings into your life, he already knows the outcome. He already knows where he's headed with those. He knows what he's going to teach you by them. And so the bad things as they happen, they surely do seem bad. But if you're a child of God, you've got to learn this about bad circumstances in your life, that those bad things happen for good reasons. So, so how did this work out for Paul? How did arriving in Rome in chains better work for the cause of Christ than, than for him to arrive as a free man with the ability to roam Rome? The key is in verse number 13. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. So in prison, 
This is what Paul did. He was engaging unbelievers. How did he do that? Well, let's take a look here for just a minute at the word pallets. Do you see that in verse number 13? So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. This, this palace that he's talking about here, uh, the word that, that is there is the word praetorium. And that is the entire palace complex that included where the emperor lived and also housed the elite praetorian guard of the Roman Empire. Now, many Bible commentators agree that this may refer just to the soldiers of the guard that are called the Praetorian Guard rather than the palace itself. And we might ask, well, why is that important? Well, we, we need to think about the way that Paul was kept while he was in prison. In Acts 28, the scripture says, And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. So Paul was in prison, but we ought not to think of this as being in a dungeon. But it says here that he was permitted to rent a house with his own funds. And he was under what we would call today house arrest. Now in those days, house arrest is not like we think today, where they put a, a band on your, on your ankle and it buzzes when you get close to the door, get ready to go outside, and, and so you wear that all of the time. No, their method of house arrest was to chain a guard to Paul. Some say they chained two guards to Paul, and for 24 hours every day, those guards were with him so that Paul never had a moment of privacy. But the key to that is which guards guarded him. Well, these weren't the everyday Roman soldiers. This was the Praetorian guard. This is the elite band of Caesar, uh, soldiers that had great influence. And for two years, these soldiers uh, uh, switched off in shifts, and there must have been many, many different guards that guarded Paul. They were chained to him. And you know Paul, he couldn't keep his mouth shut. Uh, he couldn't stop talking about Jesus. When he was chained in the dungeon at Philippi, he and Silas sang praises to God all night long. And here are guards that have constant exposure to the most brilliant mind in Christian history. You ever been on a cross-country flight sitting next to someone who can't stop talking? You ever had that experience? Well, the Apostle Paul was someone who couldn't stop talking. Couldn't stop talking about the Lord. So no doubt these soldiers that guarded him heard the word of God from the beginning to the end over and over and over again. Now if you sit next to me on a flight, you may not be able to get away and you may ask me some questions, but I promise you I don't have all the answers. I, I can't give you all the answers. I can't go through it from top to bottom and say this is what all of it means. But the Apostle Paul could do that. And then besides that, they're with a man who showed no bitterness towards them. He's chained to them, but he shows no contempt for these guards. He loved their souls like he loved his own. And so day after day, they could see the consistency of this man's life as he lived for Christ and told them the story of Jesus. And so they learned that Paul's not a hardened criminal that the only reason that Paul was in prison was because of this strange gospel that he preached. He hasn't really done anything wrong. It's just his beliefs. That's landed him in prison. Well, there's no doubt that many 
of these guards became converts to Christ. And then when they went home from their shifts, what do you think they talked about? What do you think they told their families when they went home to them? Well, they would relay this message of Jesus Christ to their family members. And I can imagine that Paul was the buzz of the guard room uh, each day when uh, a guard would leave his shift of guarding Paul. And he's heard something new from Paul about the Bible, about God's work and what he's done. I'm sure that they would go to the other guards and they would share this new information that they got. So can you imagine the amount of knowledge that you would gain if you were with Paul day after day after day, chained to him as he goes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then that verse in Acts says that there were many who came to see him. He wasn't prohibited from having other visitors. So every conversation was heard by those guards. And the gospel goes again, over again, and again, and again, as Paul gives it to people who had come to listen to him. So what looks like a great tragedy to have this brilliant evangelist in prison turns out to be the only way that he was able to reach these kinds of people. And then this Praetorian guard, they were in turn influential on others because these are soldiers that would be sent to far reaches of the Roman Empire with authority and they would go there and they would spread the message of Jesus Christ. God knows what he's doing. He put Paul in there for this specific reason. Bad things happen, but they happen for good reasons. So Paul says, that bad thing that happened unto me turned out to be a very good thing for the gospel. So the gospel reached those that God intends to reach, and it always does. God has his people, he knows where they are, and he has a way to reach every one of them. And it may not be a common way, it may not be the way that you think the gospel ought to get to them, but God knows where they are, and God makes sure that his elect will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So maybe you don't live in the neighborhood that you want to live in, and maybe you don't have the job that you would prefer, the one that you really wanted. But maybe it's because God put you in that house and God put you in that neighborhood or God put you in that job because if you weren't there, the people that you see there would never hear about Jesus Christ. And that's why you need to be a good witness for him wherever you are, in your job, uh, in your neighborhoods, wherever you are, you need to be a witness for Christ because that gospel can reach out to places you can never imagine it would go if you're faithful to do what God has given you to do. So don't complain about where you are. Don't complain about where God has put you. He has a purpose for that. He has a reason that you are where you are and you go through what you go through. So everywhere that a Christian goes, he goes by the grace of God. And whatever it is that God does with you, it will be for his glory in one way or another. You just need to learn this, that when you got saved, your life became about him. It's not about you. So day after day, Paul engaged unbelievers. Now, there's also a second opportunity for testimony. Not only was he engaging unbelievers, but there was an opportunity here for encouraging believers. Many came to Paul in his hired house, and they were encouraged by his testimony. Now, Rome wasn't an easy place to live with the gospel. There was persecution. No doubt there were Many believers that were intimidated by uh, the suffering that was there. I've told you many times before what Nero did as the, as the, uh, when he was Caesar in Rome and how he burned Christians and just all sorts of things that happened to them. 
But when people came to visit Paul and they saw he wasn't afraid, he wasn't afraid to speak out and that he was in prison because he spoke for Christ, they were emboldened to speak also. We see that in verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Is that not upside down? Who thinks like this? The, the people that came to see Paul, they saw he's in prison, he's chained to guards because he preached the gospel, and instead of being afraid that this is what would happen to them, they become much more bold to speak the word of God also. Why did they do that? Because they saw the effect that it had for the kingdom of God. They saw what, how, how Paul fought through that, and Paul wasn't worried about all of that. He was only interested in serving God. And this is what we find to be true, that persecution has never stopped the spread of the gospel. In fact, where persecution is greatest, there you find the most courageous evangelist. Persecution can turn timid believers into bold witnesses. They tell us today that there are thousands upon thousands of believers in China that risk detection by a hostile government And yet every day they go on preaching and teaching the world about Jesus Christ, their countrymen about Christ. When Russia was opened up a few years ago after the Berlin Wall fell and and, uh, Russia entered into that period where uh, communism fell, it was a surprise to find out that there were hundreds and thousands of underground churches and there were Christians that were still preaching and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that took place under godless communism and persecution. But today we look at America and we have no persecution. And we don't, since we don't, the influence of Christianity becomes less year after year. Without the persecution, people stop standing for Christ. And what's happened is American Christians have become weenies. We whine and we cry about everything. Every little trouble that comes along, we want to cry about it. But when you as a Christian endure without belly aching, whatever comes into your life, and you trust God, and and you, you instead of asking, why is God doing this to me? If you don't react to your troubles in that way, you will become the encouragement that another believer needs. Bad things happen for good reasons. And when you shine in the middle of all the bad things that happen to you, that becomes a great testimony that will help some weaker Christian go through what he's going through. So you see, God's people, we're always linked by the same God. And this God knows the detail of every life, all the details. Nothing will slip by God. He orchestrates and he manipulates our affairs to bring about the best outcome for all of us and for his glory. Bad things happen for good reasons when you never forget that God is in control. Let me read this great comment by Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on Philippians called The Life of Joy and Peace. He wrote this about Paul. He said, there was one thing about which Paul was absolutely certain, and that was the love of God. He just lays that down as something which is sure, absolute, and immovable. When he found himself in trouble or enduring tribulation, the devil undoubtedly tempted him to begin to ask questions about God and his love. But Paul says, in effect, no, I'm certain of that one thing and I can stand by it. 
He does not admit such a thought because he is so sure of the love of God. So he reasons and argues like this. Whatever else, says Paul to himself, may be or may not be the explanation of all these things that are happening to me. They are not in any way to be explained by the fact that God does not love me or that God is acting in a manner that is inconsistent with that love. And that is the thing that matters. And that's the way that we've got to think. You must know God sees that big picture. God loves us. And he's never going to let anything into our lives that is not somehow for the best of his people. I I think about that in the experiences that we've had in these past three weeks. And I think maybe that what God did, he said, you can't preach that sermon yet because you haven't learned enough about it yet. You, You don't know enough to preach this message. And not until I saw what's happened in these past three weeks that I find a new compassion for uh, people that in hospitals and things that I've seen and the bad things that God brings us through. He's built our faith. He's built our love in the church. He's, he's, he accomplishes things through this. And I know that he does. And so we're not going to complain about that. We'll leave God his due. Let him do what he's going to do and trust him that it will be right. So prison or no prison, God accomplishes his work. And he does so many things that we can't figure out in the moment. Not when that thing is going on, but God knows the why of it. Well, there's one other uh, part that I want to cover from these verses. We've looked at the certainty of trouble and the opportunity for testimony. And thirdly, I, I want us to take just a minute to look at the disparity of teachers. There was a difference in the way that some people took Paul's imprisonment and the way that others took it. One group is in verses 15 and 16. The other is in verse 17. And this first group had a problem of wrong motives. That's our next point. There is a problem of wrong motives. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. And when Paul arrived in Rome, there was already a church there. Paul is not the one who founded the church at Rome. And when he wrote to the Romans, he was writing to people that were already Christians. And he said, I want to come and visit you. And when I get there, I hope that I will win some converts personally in your city. Now, unfortunately, though, the church at Rome suffered some of the same problems that we have in churches today. And I'm speaking of jealousy and envy in the ministry. Paul went to Rome, admittedly. Not in the manner that he wanted, but he was there. And as an apostle, he was influential. The verse that we read in Acts a moment ago said that Paul spoke confidently. There were many people that came in and out of his house. And so there was evidently some in the church that didn't like Paul and his interference. They didn't like Paul's influence. And I suppose that what Paul did was he stole some of the thunder of the preachers who didn't like to have the affections of the people divided. And this is something that we learn about ministry, that ministry is often a cutthroat business. And instead of, instead of welcoming good intellectual expositions of Scripture by capable people, some preachers are intimidated by it. And so there must have been some in the church at Rome that just weren't too happy about Paul because he was a rival ministry. Now, that doesn't mean that these others were preaching untruths. 
Here, Paul indicates they weren't teaching anything that was untrue, but their motives in their teaching was wrong. Perhaps they were were looking for attention. And the Apostle Paul, with all of his great gifts and his abilities that they didn't have, was taking away too much attention. Maybe they felt inferior to Paul. And so they were envious and became very contentious. An apostle certainly has more authority than them. And we find the same is true today. Do you think for a moment that among us independent Baptists that we always get along with each other? Do we? No, there's always infighting. There's always something going on between all the independent groups. If there's one preacher who wants to rise above all the others, he wants to be the great spokesman for the entire movement, and you just do a little reading, and you'll find out who's in and who's out in, in all these movements of the independent Baptists. And so for some leaders in Rome... The deeper that Paul was in the hole, the better they liked it. If they locked Paul away and you never heard from him again, that's okay with them. And then there are some who believe that contentious Christians in Rome finally obscured Paul's ministry because um, if you're familiar with this story, Onesiphorus, who comes out of the book of Philemon, Philemon, we know the story of of, uh, him being a slave to Philemon, that he came to Rome looking for Paul and it appears that he had a hard time finding him. Well, you have to think, how hard can Paul be to find? He's in prison. How hard is it to find him there? Well, he wrote about this in 2 Timothy. He said, but when he was in Rome, uh, that he's talking about Onesiphorus, when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. And that might be an indication that he had a hard time searching and finding Paul. So Paul started out well-known, but because of strife in the ministry, he became more limited And there are some who believe that jealousy and strife among Christians eventually contributed to Paul's execution. And if that's not true, or that's not the case, we certainly can't say the envy, the jealousy, and the contention helped Paul's ministry. But Paul has more reason to rejoice, because there's another group of people in verse 17. And here he gives praise for right motives. Some are contentious, but verse 17 says, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. Now, according to the end of verse number 15, some were motivated with goodwill towards Paul, and these were Christians that the cause of Christ mattered more to them than personalities. Now, there's another interesting statement in verse 18, because once again, Paul reflects his unpretentious attitude. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. So it didn't matter much to Paul who's prominent. If he's prominent or they're prominent, that doesn't matter. He is concerned, is the gospel preached? Is Christ being exalted? And if so, then there's reason to rejoice, even though the motives are wrong. And so we do the same. We rejoice in ministries that reach people if they uphold Christ. Now, I want you to hold on to that statement. I want to finish with this comment, that Christ is exalted only by truth. In studying for this message, I read some commentators who took verse number 18 and said, here is an excuse for us to set aside all doctrinal differences and come together as one big happy family of Christians and forget all about the denominational differences. I hardly think that that's what Paul means. 
Paul would always separate from those who didn't preach truth. And our denominational differences are more often differences between truth and error. Paul didn't condemn these people for doctrinal differences because uh, if he had, then he would have said what he said to the Galatians. He said to the Galatians, if anyone comes to you and doesn't preach the same gospel that I preach, let him be accursed. But we don't see that here. So this is not a problem with the gospel. It's not whether is this gospel they preach true or false. No, this is a jealousy issue. And so Paul says, if they preach truth, then I can stand the criticism. If they preach truth, I'll take a back seat if that's what it takes. If that lifts up the gospel, if that exalts Jesus Christ, that's okay. I'm willing to take the back seat. But unfortunately, today, with all doctrinal, with uh, rather different denominations, our differences are often differences in the gospel. Most denominations today teach some form of a work salvation, or in the process of their preaching, they somehow cloud the gospel of Christ, and those we will not cooperate with. We exalt Christ only when we preach truth. Paul said, I am set for the defense of the gospel. And that gospel is a gospel that we will not compromise. Now the point for you to take from the message is that the most important thing about life is not you. It's not the troubles that you experience. This world is nothing but a temporary sojourning place for Christians. We're not going to be here all that long. Not compared to what God has for us. We're not going to be here that long. And so we don't need to be consumed with all these issues that don't matter in eternity. You will have trouble. No matter where you live, there are common problems. And as we've mentioned, being a Christian just adds to the problems that are on the list. So wherever you are and whatever the problems are, consider that God has a purpose in them. And you might not find out that purpose in the short term. And I would say most of the time we don't. But if you serve God faithfully, and if you're always about the business of the gospel, I promise you God will receive glory from your life. And you can't ask more than that because that's why we're Christians. That's what the Christian life is all about. To God be the glory forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and encouragement that we get from it. Lord, we do live in a world full of troubles, and each of us in this room tonight has had our, what we think is our fair share of them, plenty of the bad experiences that we go through. But one thing that we've always found out in every bad time is that you are always faithful. In the end, we find out what it was all about. In the end, we see that we did survive, and we have become stronger, and we've learned a lesson, and... We can serve you better because you know what you're doing. Thank you, Lord, for all things that you bring into our life. Give thanks in all things, your word says. We give you the praise for that tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.